This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. going through Acts chapter 23 verses 12 through 24 verse 27. And uh, so <laughs> there it is. Okay, I didn't know what that was. Uh, the main point this morning that we're going to walk away with is that God will. Not just that God can, but that God will. Because uh, those are two different scenarios, right? If God can but doesn't, then uh, we sometimes get frustrated and we're like, where are you, God? But knowing that God will do something significantly changes how we view him. Um, now, the question is, what will God do, of course? Because I don't know about you, but when I, when I read that phrase, I, I often think God's will, not God will. So I have to kind of shift my mind. You might have to do the same, right? Uh, because if you naturally just say God's will, uh, to take out that possessive and just say God will, it's, it's significantly different. It changes the phrase, but not necessarily the truth. What will God do is dictated by what God's will is, right? So God will, but he does what he wills. So we often want God to do what we want him to do, right? But the question is not, can God do something? The question is, what will God do? If we believe that we have a sovereign God who can do whatever he pleases, what will he do? I think this comes somewhat from the idea or the question, if God is in control, why does he allow us to do evil? Now, when I've heard that question, I typically hear it like this. If God is in control and he's a good God, then why does he allow evil things to happen? But as I said to my friends in Baltimore this week, we often, if we're going to ask the question, we should ask it like this. If God is in control, then why does he allow me to do evil things? We, we like to look at what is happening around us rather than looking at what is happening within us. And when we do that, we place the blame on God and what he is doing outside of us rather than looking inside and going, God where are you in my life, in the mistakes that I've made, in the struggles that I have? As we've seen throughout Acts, it's a humility that says, God, you are in control. You are in control despite the, the, the chaos that is around me. See, freedom with no control is chaos. We are really good as humans at destroying things. Are y'all with me? We are really good at destroying things in this world. We, God builds up this beautiful creation. He's like, hey, uh, all I want you to do is take care of it, provide for it, multiply within it, do what it takes to make sure that this thing is growing right, providing the fruit that is able to sustain your life. And what do we do with it? We destroy everything. This is what we are good at. We eat what is not good for us. We destroy what is good for us. We break down relationships that were good for us. We are so good at at getting freedom from God. God's like, you do and enjoy this creation that I'm giving you to oversee. And then what do we do with it? We destroy it. Freedom without control is chaos, but freedom with sovereignty is hope. 
When we have freedom but know that God is sovereign over this world that is full of chaos, we can know that God is working within it. We can know that God can work through it. We can know that God has a plan despite the chaos that we see around us. Freedom without control equals chaos, but freedom with sovereignty gives us hope. We do not have a God that is absent from us. Freedom is not the absence of sovereignty. It's the presence of gracious sovereignty. It's God giving us the ability to make good and bad decisions, but when we make good and bad decisions, He has chosen to work in and through us to accomplish His plan and His will. So often we want God to accomplish our plan and our will that when He doesn't accomplish our will and our plan, we think that God is not in control, right? But the question is not, is God in control? The question is, what is He in control of? And if we as humans say, this is my will, this is my plan, I want you to accomplish it, and He doesn't accomplish it, we look at Him like He's a failure. But when we submit to God's plan and God's will for our life, and we see Him doing things in and through our lives that sometimes don't, doesn't feel comfortable when we see Him doing those things in our life, we can trust that He is at work, that He is still sovereign, that my God is still in control over the chaos that we see around us because even though freedom allows bad people to do evil things and good people to do good things and good people to do bad things and good people to tear things down and good people to build things up, allow, God allows all of this to take place. He is still in control and can work in the midst of it. That's a good and sovereign God. Now, it doesn't always make sense for us because sometimes we look around us and we're like, I see chaos, I see brokenness, I see destruction, where's God? The question again, if we say God must be here doing this for me and changing this about me and providing this security for me and providing this health for me, and if God must be doing this thing, then God must be accomplishing your plan and your will. But the question is not, will God accomplish your plan and will? The question is, will God accomplish his plan and will? And the answer is this, God will. Our question is, will we become a part of it? The Bible is clear and has never altered, never offered something other than the truth that we will experience brokenness, destruction, pain, turmoil, uh, um, uh, broken relationships, destruction of God's earth, broken nations, broken leaders, broken everything. The Bible does not act like we're not going to see that. Instead, what it shows us is that despite that, God doesn't come in and just say, I'm going to control everything like little robots. God comes in and says, I'm going to work through the brokenness. He allows freedom while maintaining sovereignty, and he works in the midst of it to accomplish his plan, which is Jesus Christ coming to the earth, dying on the cross, raising from the dead, so that we might have what? Forgiveness and freedom. Not so that we might return back to slavery, to sin, but instead that we would be free to righteousness. But yet not that our freedom would be out of control and live in chaos, but yet that it would live under a sovereign God. You see, freedom is both most adequately and most beautifully, most in the goodness for us is most experienced when we recognize that our freedom is under a sovereign God. Because our God can care for us, our God can provide for us, and our God will accomplish his plan. He may not accomplish your plan, but he will accomplish his plan.
I want to show you this through the story of a man named Paul. If you've been tracking with us in Acts, you've seen Paul go through difficulties. You've seen his life be completely transformed from evil into righteousness, from doing what man wanted him to do to doing what God wanted him to do. You've seen this man uh, experience a dramatic transformation in his life. I want you to walk with me through Acts 23, and we're going to see him endure some difficult seasons, but see how God works through it. Verse 12. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Now, just for a moment, think about this. We don't see Paul's family uh, in Scripture, except for this moment. His nephew, right? We, we don't see uh, stories about Paul's family. It, it seems like in Philippians that he kind of tells us that his, he had to sort of disconnect from his family. Uh, it seems like his faith kind of separated him out from his family um, in, in his journey. But in this situation, God brings about this scenario where his nephew hears about uh, this attack that's supposed to happen upon him. So look at what happens because of this situation. Verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So the young man, the, uh, the nephew of Paul, goes to Paul, tells him what's going to take place. Paul then sends him to a centurion. As you think about him sending him to the centurion, remember, he's ultimately going to send him to the commander. Remember, this is a young man uh, as you're going to see throughout the story, he, he's being held by the hand. Like, it seems like he's a really young kid. Now, the way he talks seems like he might be a little bit older, but in their day, they had to mature a little bit faster. They were put out on their own a little bit earlier, and their education ended a little bit earlier than ours does. But he seems to kind of have a, a good education behind him by the way he speaks, or Luke records him speaking. But he is young uh, because he's being taken by the hand and, like, leaded through these different areas like he can't lead himself. And he's being taken to a centurion and a commander. Can you imagine like the weight of this moment? Because what's he going to tell them? There are Jews who want to attack a Roman. That's a significant offense. He's going to tell Roman leaders that there are Jews who are going to attack a Roman. This Roman leader is obviously not going to be happy about this situation. And so this young man Paul has sent him to go and share this news, and it's going to be a big deal. So Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander, and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring uh, this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside, and inquired privately, what is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they are going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you, because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. 
So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. They, he's about to raise up this large army to go up against this, but just put yourself in the life of this young boy who has just shared with the centurion and the commander that there is an attempt on a Roman. Try to put yourself in that situation and think through this. Do you think that there is, do you think that there is a God working in the midst of this? I want to remind you of, uh, of Acts chapter 23, verse 11, which we ended on. It said, uh, Jesus specifically said that he was going to Paul, that he was going to make it to Rome to preach the gospel. And now there are things that are being orchestrated. Luke sees it and records it, not for no reason. Like Luke is intentionally putting this in here so that you see it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in here. Like There's a reason this, this story is in here. God is working through the nephew of Paul to bring Paul to Rome. I, I don't know many young men that would be able to stand up and do something like this. This takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of... Uh, um, the fact that he was even in the Sanhedrin or around the Sanhedrin to hear about this situation ought to tell you that like he's kinda, he kind of is aware or knows uh, the Sanhedrin and the people around it but he also knows the Romans enough to be able to go there. and So like, he's in a pretty difficult situation in this moment. But God is using him to bring about his plan. Verse 23, He summoned two of his centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts to, to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix the governor. He wrote the following letter, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Okay, now, Governor Felix, which is later going to be replaced by Festus because he didn't do a good job, he's leading this area, like, uh, um, and most of these people are in Caesarea or around Caesarea, which is north of Samaria, on the coast, and um, Felix is not a really good leader. But this guy's writing to him to sort of butter him up like, you know, you, you are this high and ranking leader. He's not actually that. But when he's, when he, what does he do the next, what's the next thing he does? Oh, I rescued this Paul. I rescued this Roman I provided care for him when he was about to be killed. But is that accurate? This is interesting. Um, you remember a couple weeks ago we had the situation where there was Jews who were trying to attack Paul. There were Romans who came and attacked Paul. Well, he was part of that group that came and attacked him and almost had Paul flogged and killed until he found out he was a Roman. He seems to have left that part out, right? He says, I rescued this Paul. Why is he saying this? It seems that Paul has become somewhat political to him. It seems that Paul is like kind of like a pawn to be used in front of Felix to say, the Jews are coming against him. The Jews have tried to attack him, but I'm stopping them from attacking them. And I rescued him out of this situation. He's boosting himself up in front of Felix instead of providing care for this young man. He's trying to use it as a pawn for his own leadership aspirations. Verse 28 says, Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down 
Before their Sanhedrin, I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. Why? Because a Roman leader can kill, imprison, flog, do all sorts of things if you uh, make a mistake in their law. If you uh, uh, come against them or if you do something that's offensive to the Romans, they can obviously put you in jail or kill you or flog you, any of those different things. But if it's because of the Jewish law, they can't do anything. It's, if it's a religious, it's not that they can't do anything, it's that they choose not to. If it's a religious issue, they're just like, you guys take care of it yourselves. This is religious issues. Now, on the flip side, the Jews can't do anything, these Jewish religious leaders specifically, they cannot do anything because they can only control what is religious. Outside of the religious uh, discussions, debates, and uh, mistakes that people make, they can't dabble in putting people in jail, in killing them, or, or anything like that, but they have to rely on the Romans to come against law and come against issues in the civil court. So uh, Felix specifically recognizes this. He takes him from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin comes against him religiously, and he's like, I can't do anything about that. I'm not going to do anything about that. That's a religious issue. So verse 31 uh, uh, sorry, verse uh, uh, 30. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. And when these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. Now here is where the issue begins, right? You've got the, uh, these religious elite, this high priest specifically, which, if I just remind you, is the whitewashed wall from the last story, right? These, this high priest is the whitewashed wall that uh, Paul isn't super uh, in good, good, super good relationship with at this time. Uh, these, these Jews, he's called them whitewashed walls. And he also brings along with him a lawyer. Now, I've got nothing against lawyers uh, that are honest and truthful and respectful. But in this situation, we have what uh, many people would characterize uh, uh, some, some, some lawyers as, which can be uh, turning the truth into something that is not. Uh, and twisting truth, right? Uh, so the high priest essentially lawyers up. He goes to a lawyer, finds a lawyer to come in, and uh, do you think that this lawyer is going to tell the truth or twist the truth? Check it out. Verse 1, these men presented their case against Paul to the governor, and when Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, and I want you to really hone in on what he says and see if this is truth. We enjoy great peace because of you, and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight, which is literally just buttering this man up. Like, but notice what he says. Great peace because of who? Because of him. He's giving the peace to Felix, right? You're the one who's brought peace and reform to this place. Verse 3. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. But... So that I will not burden you any further, I request that you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. For we have found this man to be a plague and agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we have apprehended him. 
By examining him yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. Now, what does he have to do? Does he come at him and say uh, that he's wrong religiously? No. This is the high priest who is over religious matters coming to a governor to tell him that this Paul is creating riots and revolting in the Roman Empire. Now, if you notice how he did this, he says, Felix, you have created great reform that has brought about peace. Paul is bringing about reform that is bringing about revolting, rioting. He says specifically he's becoming an agitator, somebody who's a plague to all the Roman world. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, not the sect of Jesus Christ, not the sect of the way, but the sect of the Nazarenes. Why? Because Nazareth was diminished by many. They thought it was insignificant. So he tries to point that out. This guy's nothing except a rioter. Why did he do this? Because that's the only way that he could get Roman, the Romans to kill Paul. Or to flog him, beat him to the point where he might die. Or to put him in jail to the point where he might die. Or something like that. They wanted him dead, clearly, as we've seen. They wanted to ambush him and kill him. They want Paul dead. And the only way they can get that is if the Romans think that Paul is creating riots and stirring people up. So they point out the thing that they think they can, um, they can uh, get Paul killed, killed about. And so verse 10 when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, Because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I am glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges they are now making against me. But I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. And while I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd and without any uproar. It is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges if they have anything against me. Or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one statement, I shouted while standing among them. Today I'm on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. I love how Paul responds to this. Because he doesn't, he doesn't just try to refute what um, Tertullus said, the lawyer said. He comes in and he says, Hey guys, I'm, I'm the one who was ritually pure. I was just there to worship. And here's what I specifically did. I brought charitable donations to the poor. You see, the, the Tertullus and the Jews came at him to, to like bash him and to get him killed. And Paul's just like, man, I was just bringing donations to the poor. I love that because he he's not attacking. He's not coming against them to like beat down their character or anything like that. Like when you think about in a defense or in a time where like somebody's coming against you, like from a, a, another religious group or something like that, is your first stance like I'm just going to attack everything about them and rip down their character? He goes to no, no, no. I was just bringing charitable donations to the poor. Which to Felix has to say, man, this guy's not a writer. He's just trying to take care of the poor. 
I hope that when the world sees us and sees our actions and they judge us or they come against us, we'll be able to respond not simply with trying to attack them or attack their character, character, but be able to respond with our character, what we have done for the glory of God, how we act, how we love, how we care for the poor. And so Paul's defense is exactly what Felix needs to hear because now it's becoming a religious issue again. Clearly he's not the rioter unless they have proof, which he, Paul kind of shows them. You guys ain't got proof. Like, show me a specific issue, a specific situation where he was a rioter. Now, you know what's fascinating about this? Throughout all of Acts, we have seen rioting, right? We've seen uproars. We've seen people gathered together and getting frustrated, all of these different things. Every single time, who is it that's doing it? It's the Jewish religious leaders. Right In Ephesus, they were stirring up frustrations amongst the Ephesian Gentiles, and they were creating turmoil within them uh, to, to create this problem in the city. It wasn't the Christians. It wasn't the people of the way, if you will. It was the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, later, even in Paul's circumstance that we have right here, um, when he is in the temple, it's not because Paul's in the temple that it creates a riot. It's because the Jewish religious leaders went around, went around and gathered people together and brought them in there to create a stir, to create a riot, to create frustration. And so Paul is literally in the middle of a rioting group of Jewish relig- religious leaders and those who they've brought together. And the Romans, he's being flogged and tortured, hurt and abandoned, and he's, he's literally the peacemaker. And in that situation, you can literally, I can like literally picture it. He's like, I, I just came here to bring money to the poor. And yet he's being rejected, abandoned, persecuted. He's suffering. Sometimes in your life, it feels like, God, I'm just trying to do what you called me to do. I'm just trying to be faithful. I'm just trying to love my family and guide my family. I'm just trying to love those around me and care for the poor. I'm just trying to do what you want me to do. Why am I stuck in this situation? Why are there people who are lying about me? Why are they throwing me in jail? Why are they beating me? Why am I headed to my death? Like, he knows he's headed to death. In all these situations, Paul remains faithful. And what does he do in the middle of his defense? He preaches the gospel. He's like, let me tell you what I believe in. I believe in the Bible. I believe in my God. I believe in resurrection. Like, he is so clear about what he believes in. He's not afraid to stand on what he believes in because he knows that Felix isn't going to come against him because of these simple beliefs. He's going to come against him because he's been a rioter. And so Paul lays it out there before him. You want to know who I am? Here's who I am. And I hope that in the middle of these difficult situations in your life where you feel like you're just in this suffering moment, in this persecution moment, whether you're in the valley or on the mountain where you feel like, man, I'm doing good and I'm doing well, no matter where you are, that you're able to just say, God, I trust in you. I know that you can and I know that you will. Just get me a part of your plan and I'll go where you want me to go. That's what Paul does here. It's not like it's easy for him. It's not like it's all smooth sailing for him. But he's just faithful in the midst of this. So verse 22 says, uh, Since Felix was well informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. He ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom, and that he should not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, uh, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. 
Now as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, Leave for now, but when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that Paul would offer him money, so he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. After two years had passed, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and, became, and because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. Now, when we get through that story, it's kind of like, God, what are you teaching us in these moments? But I want, I want you to see that despite all the difficulties Paul faced, God was fulfilling what he promised in verse 11 of chapter 23. He said, Paul, you have, Jesus Christ specifically says to Paul, you have preached in Jerusalem, but it's necessary for you now to testify in Rome. He's fulfilling what he said he'd do, and I want to show you how he did it. First, God acted through a young nephew. Like in the most bizarre situation, like things that you don't expect to happen. Have you ever seen God work around you and you're like, man, I did not expect that to be the way that God worked. I didn't, sometimes I think in my own life, it's like, man, I didn't expect God for you to change me by using that person. I didn't, I didn't know that I needed to see what was going on in my own heart until I was around that person. Now you've exposed my heart. Or maybe you'd say, man, I thought I was just destined for uh, this, this pattern of destruction. I was destined for uh, separation from someone who I love, someone whom I care about. You're like, man, I don't, I don't think this is ever going to resolve. You're like, I can't figure this out. And you're like, where are you, God? What are you doing? And all these different things. And then there's this young nephew, which just like surprises everything. We don't see anything like this in Acts. We don't see his family at all. And then all of a sudden, there's this young nephew uh, providing salvation for him from these Jewish uh, uh, religious leaders who are trying to kill him. It's just a bizarre thing that Luke records here, but it's intentional. Because God acted through a young nephew to bring about his plan, and sometimes God is going to use things in your life that you don't expect. Maybe it doesn't even make sense, but you're like, man, thank you, God, for using that situation. Don't be blind to the little things that God is doing around you to, get, to accomplish his plan in you. Don't be blind. Look at the little things to see what God is doing in your life. The second thing he does is God works through a Roman leader. We just don't expect it. If you thought anything, you would think God is going to work through the Jewish leaders. Like the Jewish religious leaders are going to be like, yes, like the Messiah has come, things are going to be fulfilled. Don't forget the surprising, radical nature of God using this Roman leader to bring about salvation. Specifically, salvation to the Gentiles in Rome. Like, don't lose that surprise and that shock when you see that God is working through a man named Felix, who is the governor, who's going to be replaced by Festus, like insignificant, wouldn't even know his name, aside from the fact that he's in the most popular book of all existence. Like, we wouldn't even know who he was if he wasn't recorded here in history. But God worked through him to accomplish his plan. Acts 23, verse 24, it says, Also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may, may be brought safely to Felix the governor. And then Felix says, what does he say? Centurions, guard Paul. Watch over Paul. Provide freedom for Paul and let his friends provide what he needs. God acted through a young nephew. God worked through a Roman leader and God worked it out. Because God will work out his plan. God will accomplish his plan. When everything looks twisted and messed up, when everyone is against Paul and it looks like nothing is going to resolve, God still worked in the midst of it. Acts 23, verse 11. 
The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. But what did it take to get him to Rome? It took God working, God showing up, God using people who, you would, who are just surprising, who seem insignificant or seem really significant. God uses the young nephew of seems insignificant, and then God uses a Roman leader who seems vastly significant in this situation. And you see all of this, and God is working through all of it to Acts 28, verse 16. Acts chapter 28, verse 16, where it says, When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to, uh, allowed to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul entered Rome. That's what God was doing. I mean, there, there's multiple times in the midst of that where Paul could go, God, what are you doing? Why am I not back in Ephesus? Why am I not with the Corinthians? Why am I not hanging with Timothy and investing in him? God, why am, I, why am I still here? Why have you not provided a way out of this jail cell? Why have you not provided for me peace in the midst of this chaos? Like he could think about it that way, but rather he stays faithful and he sees not his plan come to fruition, but God's plan come to fruition for his life. So what does this mean for us? It means that God can work things out. God can work things out in your life. He is able. He is sovereign. He can work in the midst of our freedom, and He can work in the midst of evil, and He can work in the midst of good. He will work in the midst of what He chooses to work in. God can work things out because He is sovereign, and God will work things out. We oftentimes ask the question, if God can, why isn't He? But remember, it's not that God isn't. It's just that He's doing what He's destined to do, what he has already created for you in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. He knew what he would do, and he would accomplish it through his son, Jesus Christ. So he knows what is going to happen, and he has worked in the midst of it to accomplish his plan. God will work things out, and in his grace, hopefully, he'll use you to be a part of this plan. In some small way, in some great way, whatever way he uses you, would you just submit to the plan that God has for you and watch him bring it to completion? You see, when things don't look like they will work out, remember that God will. That doesn't mean that God will do what you want him to do, but it does mean that God will accomplish what he has sought to do. You see, freedom is not the absence of sovereignty, it's the presence of gracious sovereignty. When you see destruction around you, it doesn't mean that God's not in control. It just means that man's trying to take over again. It just means that we've messed up again. If anything, when we see destruction around us, when we lose people we loved, when we see people fighting, when we see relationships being destroyed, when we see people hurting each other, when we see small acts of jealousy and hate and anger and lying, or large acts of murder and violence, when we see all of these things taking place, we can know that God has allowed freedom. God has allowed us to do what we want to do because he's a good and gracious God. But even despite that, even despite our inability to take care of the beautiful creation he has given us. He still chose to send his son to die for us that we might have life 
and that we might have forgiveness and that we might have freedom, which in my mind is, and I hope in your mind, is just unbelievable. He sees us in our freedom fail, and yet he sends his son to die that we might have freedom again. The question is not, do you have the freedom? The question is, have you recognized that there is a sovereign God over our freedom? You see, freedom isn't threatened by sovereignty. It's protected. We have to allow God to be sovereign to really experience freedom. Otherwise, we'll experience enslavement to sin, to destruction, to pain. That's why he sent his son. That's why his son died for you on the cross. That's why his son achieved freedom for you. His son didn't die on the cross for Paul to have a blissful retirement or a peaceful vacation. To have infinite amounts of money, pleasure, satisfaction, comfortability. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that Paul could have that. It was for much, much more. And I think in Paul's specific journey in his life on this earth, rather than God orchestrating this satisfaction or this peacefulness or this blissfulness, he orchestrated a plan to get Paul to Rome. Maybe that doesn't sit well with you. Maybe you're just like, man, I'm, I'm looking for a God that's going to situate me in a nice peaceful vacation. Not for a God that's going situ- to situate me in Rome with a guard watching me preach. But man, I would push you because what we're doing then is we're saying that my way is better than God's way. Our job today, our, our task as disciples of Christ is not to figure out what is the best way for me, but instead to figure out what is God's way for me. Because those are two radically different things. There's man's way and there's God's way. And you get the opportunity today to choose which one will I follow. Now, the one that might be towards God might lead towards Rome. Might lead towards jail cell. Might lead towards things that you're like, I, this does not make sense. But in a world for, full of chaos where God is sovereign, sometimes God doesn't make sense because we're so used to the mess we see around us. Like, this doesn't make sense to me. And God's like, well, yeah, that's because you're used to eating things that you, I told you not to eat. Oh, God, this doesn't feel good. Well, that's because you're used to doing things that I told you not to do, but you did, and it made, it feel, it made you feel good. It made you feel like it was right. It made it seem like it was right, but it's not right. And they were like, God, I don't, I don't know if I want that. And I think sometimes we feel like, God, I don't know if I want Rome. I'd rather stay over here in my own journey. Look, if we're always looking for a God to bring our chaos under control so that we can further our plans, we have falsely identified ourselves as gods. But if we are seeking the one true God to bring chaos under control so that he can further his plans and secure our goodness, then we've met our Savior. That is the beauty of the gospel 
that what we think saves us in this chaos is what is killing us. And yet in chaos, we killed the one who saves us. This morning, you've got to make a decision. Do you want to turn from God or turn towards God? Do you want to run towards your way or run towards God's way? Are you okay with Rome or would you rather have some separation from the difficulty that it takes to go down the narrow road, as Jesus would say? As the band comes... I want to remind you the main point of this sermon is that God will. Now, when the religious leaders um, said that they would take upon themselves a curse, that if they did not kill, or that they would not eat or drink until they were able to kill Paul, they took that curse upon themselves. Y'all remember that? In this passage of chapter 23, they took a curse upon themselves. The other time that's used in Scripture is when Peter... Uh, denies Christ for the first time. He does it three times. The first time he did it, he uses that word. Now, we, can, we see what happens when people reject God, when people turn away from God. This morning, we have the opportunity. Maybe you feel like you have been rejecting God. Maybe you feel like Peter, you've taken upon that, or those religious leaders. Maybe you feel like, man, I've just been, I've been causing chaos around me, and I've been okay with it. Or maybe you feel like you've been causing chaos around you, but you just don't know how to get out of it. But those around you are broken. You can't maintain relationships. You can't find fulfillment. You can't find hope. You can't find uh, the satisfaction of God's goodness in this world. You feel like, man, you just cause destruction around you. You don't bring life to anybody around you. And you haven't found God's plan for you. Isn't, doesn't that sound so much like the religious leaders and not Paul? The religious leaders are like, kill him. Like, take him down. Wipe, put him in jail, wipe him out or something. And what does Paul say? I just came here to take care of the poor. Man, if your life looks like destruction around you rather than caring for those who are around you, maybe it's time for you to look at your life and say, maybe I've been a little bit more like Peter. I've taken upon myself this denial of who Jesus is and what his plan for my life is, seeking out satisfaction and security, comfortability in my life rather than pursuing Christ, even if it meant going to Rome. But today, we can see and look back at Peter's life and know that even though he denied Christ three times, he was restored. Maybe these Jewish leaders were not, but we know Peter was. So today, I'm challenging you with this. This is your gospel response. Recommit to God's plan. We have an unstoppable God with an unstoppable plan working through an unstoppable church, and we are called to be a part of that plan. But this morning, maybe you have been like Peter. Maybe you've been like these religious leaders and you've been away from what God has for you. This morning, I want to challenge you to recommit to God's plan. Or maybe you need to entrust a difficult situation to God. Maybe you've, you, you committed to God's plan, like, God, I'm going to do what you've called me to do, and I'm committed to it, but you face a difficult situation in your life, and you're like, God, I, that can't be a part of you. Like, that can't be you. That doesn't look like you. That I mean, that, nothing about that is you, God. That can't be you. Y'all, and, and those aren't even difficult. Like, those are difficult situations. Those aren't easy situations. Like, those are things that you can just talk about in public sometimes. Maybe you feel like so much pain and so much hurt in your life. You're like, I, I can't give that over to God. I can't recommit to God because of that. Well, I entrust a difficult situation to God. You may see chaos and brokenness around you, but remember that God is sovereign and He has a plan. 
That is the whole reason Christ came into this world. Despite our brokenness, for you to have a new life, a transformed life, a new creation. Don't miss what God is doing. I'm going to pray for you, and as you do, if you just kind of just get in this season, just a moment, I guess a moment, just to think. I just want you to think about this. Have you trusted that God is in control? Do you believe, as you think through this and just meditate on this, pray on this, do you believe that God is in control? Despite your heart hurting, your brokenness in your body, brokenness in relationships, do you believe that God is in control? And if you do, what does it look like this morning to simply lay down at His feet all of your rebellion, all of the rejection, all of the denial, just like Peter did? I want to pray over you, but I want you just to think on this. What does it look like for us to just say, God, whatever your plan is, if it's to go to Rome, I'll go. And you've got to think about what that looks like for you in your own life. What does it look like for you to go where God has called you? What does it look like for you to do what God has called you to do in your family, with your friends, with your co-workers, with your children, with your spouse? What does it look like for you to do what God has called you to do, even when it hurts? As you continue to think about this, maybe you'd say this morning, you're like, I, I, I'm not about that. That's not, that's not going to be characterized in my life. I don't want to follow a God who is okay with people doing evil things. I would challenge you to think about this. God wasn't okay with people doing evil things. That's why he sent his son. Maybe that's not your plan, but it is his plan. Maybe you won't find security and comfortability in the happiness or the relief from the pain that you experience or the relief from the situations in your body or the relief from the situations in your relationships around you in this life. But Christ did not come for this life alone, but so that you might have a new life found in Him apart from all this pain and suffering. So there will be no tear, but only joy. So would you recommit to God's plan this morning? Or would you entrust a difficult situation to him that you feel like you can't handle? Father, we trust you. God, I trust you. I believe that you are able to handle what I can't. I pray, Father, that our church would simply be aligned to your plan. God, I know and I I believe that we're going to experience brokenness whether we have faith in you or not, the question is, will we receive salvation from that brokenness? So God, with the hurt of this world, with the pain that's in this world, with the death and destruction in this world, I pray, God, not that you would just pull us out, but that you would use us to pull others out. I pray that you would radically transform our hearts and our plans, our finances, radically transform our work, radically transform our hobbies? Would you transform our lives to be in sacrifice 
to your plans and your will in this world. And Father, where we have not given, would you convict us and compel us? I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts to move us towards what you have for us. We give this over to you and we trust you in your son's name. Amen. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.